Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. We talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title is Pro-Sex Christianity in a Sex-Crazed World. So Aaron, why did you decide to do a podcast on biblical sexuality? Well, we as Christians are often fighting against the false ideologies in our culture, many of which are sexually related. So we spend quite a bit of time talking about the radical sex ed curriculums in our schools, the whole LGBTQ gay pride movements. It just seems to be in the news all the time. Uh, People are being encouraged and coerced in their places of employment to take courses to help them to be more tolerant towards some of these uh, non-creational sexual perspectives. Recently in Canada, we had Bill C-4 pass, which is basically banning conversations with people who are struggling with uh, homosexual inclinations. And um, I was just thinking to myself, you know, we, we don't want to spend all our time as Christians just sort of wagging our fingers and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong without also helping people to understand a proper biblical view of human sexuality. So I want to just be sort of blunt and straightforward with people today and help them to think through the issues. This is not the kind of podcast you need to listen to in private, in your closet, so no one else hears that you are listening to a podcast on human sexuality. That's not helpful. It's it's the kind of podcast that you should listen to and have conversations with people about. So we don't want to encourage like a hyper secrecy uh, with regard to human sexuality. And, and we don't want to have a, you know, we don't talk about sex, Christian culture mm-hmm. continue to develop in our in our nation, in our, in our society. I just want to remind people, and, I, and I, I'm not meaning to be crass, but God created sex. God created our sexual organs. God created pleasure. God created the orgasm. This didn't come from the porn industry or from, it wasn't an invention of Hugh Hefner. God created us as sexual beings. And while we spend our time fighting against all the non-creational forms of sexual perversion in culture, we want to present a proper view of human sexuality. And we want to help, we want people to get to a point where they're not embarrassed or ashamed to have this conversation. I mean, there's there's a lot of a there's a burden attached to hiding and pretending and not not admitting you have sexual desires or not admitting you're a sexual being. This this is not helpful. And I just want to say, Chris, right at the onset of this. My observation is that Christian parents are often the worst offenders in not equipping their children to think properly about biblical sexuality. If I had a dollar for every young couple in our church that were preparing for marriage that basically admits our parents didn't even talk to us about this stuff, I'd be a wealthy man. Mm-hmm. And then pastors, you know, we, we get up and we, we may on occasion address adultery or fornication, but we, we, we sort of we're sort of indirect. We, we hint, we maybe um, vaguely address matters of human sexuality, but a lot of our people hear more sermons of what they shouldn't be doing than what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just sort of feeds this notion that sex is sort of a dirty thing, a secret thing. It's not the kind of stuff that Christians talk, talk about. Well, the world around us is talking about mm-hmm. it. And what's fascinating is if you actually open your Bible – Go right back to Genesis. The first few chapters are absolutely chocked full of references and allusion to our sexuality. In fact, that's the dominant motif when it comes to describing humanity is is in relationship to our sexuality. So, for example, right out of the gates, God created us male and female. So, right there, our sexuality is being identified. Adam is instantly lonely. He has a relational deficit that Eve fulfills. When Adam sees Eve, he declares that she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's radical physical unity there between the two. At the end of chapter two, it said they were naked and unashamed. So almost every description, barring the fact we're made in the image and likeness of God, of 
of Adam and Eve and humanity as a whole in the early chapters of Genesis has a sexual foundation to it. And then in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, there's a breach in that relationship. And this the 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 effects of sin affects uh or I should say sin affects their ability to relate properly as husband and wife in Genesis 3:16 where they're sort of if you if you understand that passage properly he becomes heavy-handed she tries to usurp his authority and then as you move through Genesis you have Lamech the, the polygamist and so so the point i want to make is the bible is a, is very much of a sexual um, book I'm not just talking about intercourse, but mm -hmm. the allusions to maleness, femaleness, relational brokenness, relational strife, deviant forms of sex, proper forms of human sexuality are woven through the pages of scripture. So if that's the case and we're biblical preachers, we should be talking about sex quite frequently mm -hmm. in our teaching and in our preaching ministries. Mm -hmm. And you're right, like the world is talking about it. And so we need to pre present, I think what you're saying, like a, a pro-sex Christianity, a pro-biblical a pro view, a creational view. Now, we don't want to spend, as you mentioned, all of our time criticizing sinful forms of sexuality because we don't really want to just be a reactionary right. kind of thing. We want to present a positive view. Yeah. Uh, but we do want to do a bit of analysis of the sexual perversion in our culture. And so just briefly, let's talk about what trends are we seeing Okay, so there's there's a lot of stuff going on at once, and we, we don't want to spend an hour and a half discussing all the perversion in our culture, but just a, a few things. There's an uptick in, in pornography. I, I've taught men's groups with 100 men in the room, and I say, hey, raise your hand if you've never seen pornography, and no hands go up. So pretty much every man willfully or by accident has seen pornography. Many are addicted to it. That is a fact of our culture. And they say that maybe one in six to one in five of women are also struggling with pornographic addictions. One of our elders posted an article just the other day about a 19-year-old celebrity, I don't remember her name, who basically admitted to getting into pornography when she was 11. It became a heavy addiction. So mm. in, it used to be thought of as a male-only sin, but it's it's jumped uh to females as well. And so it's becoming a problem. So many, many women are admitting that they have uh, addictions to pornography. Men do. Sexual perversions, one night encounters, uh, people hooking up. Mm -hmm. Obviously, society's full on acceptance of any form of non creational sexuality, lesbianism, homosexuality. Um, transgender, cross-dressing, mm -hmm. polygamy, redefining the family to include up to four quote-unquote parents or spouses, even in our own province. It's, it's, really, uh, it's really without boundaries. I mean, basically, if, if you can name it, it someone's out, out there doing it, and it's a lot more people than we probably think. So for every person that's maybe busted viewing pornography, there's probably 100 more that haven't been busted. Mm -hmm. For every person that comes out of the closet and says, you know, I, yeah, I'm a practicing homosexual, there's probably a hundred more that just aren't admitting it. So we have that issue. Pedophilia is becoming increasingly acceptable in fringe aspects of our culture. And we would expect that it would probably become more mainstream in the next little while. What people need to do is they need to look for signs of sexual addiction in their own life. Now, I don't, I don't like... I don't necessarily like using words like addiction or therapy or whatever because I don't want to take people's eyes off of the sinful, the, just the flat out sin of these these behaviors. But at the same time, I'm I'm okay with analyzing and assessing some of the deeper reasons why we we sin because by when, when we preach the word of God and we just say okay don't do this do that don't do this do that. We, we, we tend to moralize people. We want to remind people they need grace in the journey in order to remain sexually pure. But also just understanding a little bit about your past, your history, I, I think is, is fine. But some of the signs of sexual addiction that people are going to want to look for in their own lives include things like just a loss of control. They, if, if your thought life is just cluttered up, 
moment by moment with lustful thoughts, pornographic addiction, hyperemphasis on sexuality, sometimes even in marriage, that can be a problem. People that, that get involved in compulsive behavior where they become more and more, you know, risky in what they're willing to, willing to do. They, they fall further and further into perverse, perverted, unhealthy forms of sexuality. If people have the inability to have meaningful conversations with members of the opposite sex because they just they have completely sexualized the opposite sex when they when a guy sees a girl or a girl sees a guy all they all they think about is you know their their bodily sexuality that's a red flag mm-hmm. that you know you have an unhealthy understanding of human sexuality when you're sort of always undressing people in your mind as they say um, people who whose sexual behaviors become increasingly risky and they escalate. So we, we see this with pornographic use where people watch, they call it soft core porn and then it becomes hardcore porn and then it becomes gay porn and then it becomes bestiality and pedophilia and, you know, mm-hmm. sadomasochistic stuff. And it just becomes absolutely perverted and dehumanizing to the nth degree. So for example, it's interesting. So let's take adultery, for example, between a man and a woman. So people that are married, they're having sex with someone who's not their spouse or fornication, two unmarried people having sex. What this actually is, is it's the right kind of sex in the wrong context mm-hmm. outside of a covenant, outside of marriage, and therefore it's a sin. But when people get used to that, then what they they get into is they start having the wrong kind of sex in the wrong kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. So now, now the sexual act itself is no longer creational heteronormative. It's it's perverse. Mm-hmm. You 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 become worse than an animal in your sexual desires. Some people have lost jobs, lost hobbies, put aside their hobbies, given up relationships because they become sexually obsessed. They. And what often happens, and I, I've done a little bit of counseling over the years with people who have been pretty deeply involved in sexual perversion, they start to withdraw. So, so they pursue sex, sexual perversion, thinking that it's going to satisfy and fulfill and give them pleasure and you know relax them and give them a bit of freedom from the stresses and anxiety of life. But it's a false advertiser mm-hmm. because what happens is they – they withdraw from relationships. They struggle with distress, anxiety, physical disease, and discomfort. So these are just signs and symptoms. All of us are somewhat broken in our sexuality. Pretty much every human on some way, on, on some level has probably sinned sexually. So we're not we're not suggesting that we're necessarily going to be ever 100% sanctified and absolutely pure in our thoughts and deeds in this world. But when there's no boundaries at all and people are just absolutely unfettered in their sexual appetites, it's incredibly destructive. Mm-hmm. And sex isn't just a, is is almost never just a, a personal sin. It has an effect on other people, children, marriages, future generations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I know many people have described a sexual perversion and sin like a drug, right? Yeah. So you kind of, you don't get the same high that you used to off it anymore. And so that's why you go for more and more right. uh, radical or compulsive behavior. Uh-huh. Now, ultimately we know sin is behind these sexual acts. Yep. Um, we know sin is also systemic. We could say in our social structures, our broken families. And it's really, and sadly now part of a dominant uh, it's very dominant in our Western worldview. So what would you say are some of the factors, maybe societal factors that lead to sexual sin? Yeah, I think this is an important question. We need to be aware of our susceptibility. So for example, if we just open our Bibles and we're like, okay, adultery is sinful, fornication sinful, bestiality sinful, et cetera. And we just preach, okay, this, this is the list of things you can't do sexually and you know, this is the short list of things you can do sexually and just do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that kind of an approach. That's that's speaking truthfully. That's speaking truthfully. But sin isn't just just some abstract problem 
that is within you, because we are in a social environment and we affect the structures of culture and society, sin is also present systemically in cultural constructs. It can be present in, in, in laws like Bill C-4, mm -hmm. which are based upon lies. Mm -hmm. For example, that the Bible is a myth, that the, the creational heteronormative expressions of human sexuality are a myth. So there's, there's actually, there's sin in you and there's sin in me, but there's also sin in those laws. Or if a person grows up thinking that, you know, I, I can just have two daddies or two mommies, there's actually sin in their societal understanding of what a family is. Mm -hmm. If a government like the one we have in our own province says, oh, well, two people can marry of the same sex, then we have a social construct, we'll call it, where sin is present. If you send your kid to a public school or a crummy Christian school and they're taught that, oh, fornication is fine, then you now have sin present in the actual curriculum. So what I'm saying is sin isn't just, oh, it's in me, I got a problem, I need to deal with it. Sin goes out from me, goes out from you, goes out from people. And it, it's actually becomes, it systemically manifests, manifests itself in the structures and order of society. So why, why am I saying all that? Because when you're dealing with sexual sin and you want to overcome it, you need to be aware of your own sinful inclinations, mm -hmm. but you also should be aware of how the social structures and political structures around you are lying to you, mm -hmm. are tempting you, are pushing you away from God's standards towards a, um, a, a, a sinful pattern of expressing your human sexuality. So here are some, here are some things to be aware of. So in, in society, we need to be careful who we associate with. Bible talks about he who spends time with wise people will grow wise. Mm -hmm. And if you are exposing yourself to friends who have a corrupt worldview when it comes to human sexuality, or your own spouse has a corrupt unbiblical understanding of human sexuality, you need to either extricate yourself from those friendships or teach, teach and speak truth into them or both. And obviously in your spousal relationship, you should be talking about these issues with your spouse to make sure that in an increasing way, their view of human sexuality aligns with yours. So sometimes you have a husband and wife, one comes into the relationship from a, maybe, maybe they're even Christians, but they come into a relationship essentially with a non-Christian worldview of human sexuality because of their past, their upbringing, their parents, their schooling. And they have expectations or ideas about what marital sex is that aren't biblical. And then you have a conflict, you have a problem. And that's either corrected as people study the word of God and get good counseling and talk to Christian people about a proper view of human sexuality or or the relationship starts to unravel or just goes into full-on compromise, mm -hmm. you see? So we want to help people to think through that. Be careful who's influencing you. Be aware of who's influencing you. What societal structures are saying to you. We also need to be be aware of uh, loneliness, relational loneliness. We are, we are relational beings, and people often turn to sexual sin because their relationships are, frankly, chronically lacking. Yep. They're not Christ-centered relationships. They are not bi biblically-based relationships. They're not relationships that are accountable to the broader Christian community. And if you isolate yourself, and this is what pornography does, right? It mm -hmm. takes you away from the hard work of developing a meaningful relationship with your spouse, part of which is expressing yourself in a sexually appropriate way, you isolate yourself. You live in a fantasy world and you think that you're going to find satisfaction there, but you're actually shooting yourself on both feet. So it, people need to be in a robust network of relationships. And this is why when we meet young Christian young people who have loving, nurturing parents who are involved in youth ministries, who are you know involved in Sunday school, who have, uh, you know, a, are, are part of a good Christian educational system, they're less likely to, to stray into sexual perversion because they're relationally more or less satisfied. Mm -hmm. 
But the lonely single guy that spends his weekends at home on the computer is probably going to fall into sexual sin. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the fearful young adult that never bothers striking up conversations with members of the opposite sex in order to pursue marriage, but wants to be married, but never has the conversations that are necessary to get there is more likely to fall into sexual sin. Or when someone comes and shows them interest, you know, they dive into a relationship headlong with, with some ungodly person who probably is sexually compromised. So it's just, this is just like Mm -hmm. basic relational advice. I was going to say, and with our super, uh, social media driven world as well. Um, relationships, even building good relationships seems like an, a lost skill. Yes. Right. And so you build a digital relationship with someone mm-hmm. or you even hear people starting their relationships online, which maybe isn't necessarily bad, but it continuing there, it's not a full relationship, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And, and, and then just being aware of how hyper-sexualized society is. Now, it, in, in a certain respect, I think it should be because the, like I said earlier, the Bible is kind of hypersexualized in that human sexuality is part and part, parcel of our identity. We're male, we're female, we're lonely, we're in relationship, we're naked, we're unashamed, on and on and on. So we should be talking about sexual matters a lot, but we live in a culture that's hypersexualized in a hellish direction. Mm-hmm. It's bent towards <clears throat> sin. So you look at the visual stimulus that people see on billboards, on magazine covers, on advertisements, on Facebook. And unfortunately, we have a lot of young people buying into that. So I'm just going to say this straight up. There, it, is, it is never acceptable, never acceptable for any Christian young man or Christian young woman to post sexualized pictures of themselves on social media. Hmm. If you got pictures on your Facebook of you without your shirt on flexing, gentlemen, get them off. Ladies, if you have pictures of, you know, you in your bikini jumping on the beach or, you know, posing in some tight fitting garment, get those off Facebook. That's not acceptable behavior for Christian people. Okay. Christian people should be modest. We're not afraid of our sexuality. We're not saying go around, you know, wearing uh, potato sack clothing and, you know, with scruffy hair and looking like a slob. But at the same time, we have to set a different standard. And unfortunately, many young people are just following the patterns of the world. And they post these ridiculous pictures on social media looking for attention mm-hmm. from others. And then you just become a sexual object for some person that's looking for a sexual object to fulfill their own selfish desires. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating to me hearing from grandparents, parents, grandparents about what was permissible on TV years ago and even some of the words that couldn't be said or I think at one point I don't even think you could show a pregnant person on TV oh interesting (laughs) I heard that one so things like this that you're like it's gotten so crazy the other way that you could almost say and maybe we could play around with this question for a moment is there is there ever an appropriate way to see a sexual act in a video or anything like that because you know basically the only kind of sex people are seeing is unchristian sex if you're not supposed to see it. Well, the the, the book of uh, Song of Solomon is is not about Christ's relationship to his church. <laughs> it's it's an erotic part of our, the wisdom literature of Scripture that is describing in poetic language using allegories and analogies the the sexual nature of a, a man's relationship with his wife and and the the doubt the pursuit, the intimacy, the questioning, the wondering, does he love me? The affirmation that he offers, the, the sexual intercourse that they're enjoying. It is, it is a book that depicts the, the, the idea that marital sex is a beautiful thing, that, that pleasure is, is fine, that a, for a man to enjoy the appearance of his wife's body or for a wife to enjoy the appearance of her husband's body, although I don't understand why they would, frankly, <laughs> um, is is a good thing. And so we there is an a there is a sense in which we we certainly we use words mm-hmm. to describe the nature of human sexuality. I suppose you know if you're studying medicine, you're looking at diagrams and pictures and medical manuals that kind of 
show human anatomy, including genitalia and reproductive systems, that's fine. I would have no problem with a, a parent, a Christian school teacher, using appropriate diagrams to illustrate the reproductive system. I don't think there's a need for someone to see full-on nudity. Mm -hmm. And yet, increasingly, people think this is normal. Mm -hmm. Oh, if I want to increase my sex life, we should probably view porn together. By the way, when I was in grade 12, or for my American listeners, 12th grade, yeah. <laughs> I was an art major, and we, uh, I was doing a lot of uh, acrylic, acrylic painting, oil painting, some sculpture and whatnot, black and white photography. And my, my teacher said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do a nude drawing this year. So we're actually going to bring some person in that she knew. They're going to sit in front of our grade, grade 12 class nude. They're going to come for, I think, a week or two weeks. They're going to come up front of the class, strip down, sit on a stool, and we're going to draw them. And I'm like, absolutely, what we're not. in the world? <laughs> I said, I, I refuse. I will not show up. And there was only about seven or eight other students in the class, and they'd argue with me about it. I said, I, I refuse. I will. I refuse. I will not sit here in an art class to draw some naked man or whatever. I think it was a guy they were going to bring in, but even if it was a woman, I, I will not do that. Mm -hmm. But I, I wasn't even an adult yet. I wasn't even 18. And this was acceptable. This would have been back in 1990, I think it was. Wow. So. These kind of stunts have been pulled here and there in art classes and art schools for a long time. And the issue is not people having not seen enough. The issue is people have seen too much. Mm -hmm. There's very few people, I would imagine today, that are getting married, even Christian young people, that haven't seen full-on nudity, mm -hmm. either on television or online or wherever it might be because they've mm -hmm. been sexually promiscuous. So mm -hmm. we, we do have to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. A couple more things that to be aware of that I was just thinking about. Most sexual addiction counselors, pastors that are dealing with people that are full on engaged in sexual sin, understand that sexual perversion is rarely, if ever, primarily or at least exclusively about sexual cravings rather it's connected to our innate desire for intimacy for love because sex is an incredibly affirming act if it's done properly in the context of a covenant it's a very affirming act where literally you are again in a broken world going back to the end of genesis 2 you're naked and unashamed mm -hmm. we're naked and unashamed at the end of genesis chapter 2 that is marred in Genesis chapter three in the context of a covenantal marital relationship, you're seeking to find that again. Mm -hmm. You're seeking to go back to a place where a husband and wife who are meeting each other's needs spiritually, socially, relationally, emotionally are involved in a sexual act that is affirming and pleasurable and life-giving. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the proper biblical understanding of human sexuality. When people have been told that they're not made in the image and likeness of God. They're just a result of biological evolution. There is no purpose to life. Life is just all about pleasure. It's just trying to live as pleasurably as you can in the moment. Well, then they pursue sex thinking that's the solution because the loneliness that Adam had even before sin entered into the world has been amplified in people's lives because of sin. And all the centuries of brokenness that we have experienced. So although people are responsible for their actions, thinking through your relational deficits will greatly aid you, I believe, in forming a more proper view of human sexuality. Mm -hmm. And one final thing, Chris, and this this is this this is a sad one. Mm -hmm. We have Oodles of research substantiating the fact that people who fall prey to sexual abuse in childhood have a much more difficult time expressing themselves in a healthy sexual way when they're adults. Mm -hmm. And again, although people are responsible for their actions, we as a church need to speak out against child abuse, injustice, perversion, 
in marital relationships. We need to speak out strongly against the perversion that we see in a lot of the public ed curriculum. And you know, one solution is to get the Christian kids out of those environments, but the reality is other kids will be in it who, who come to our churches later on in life. So we're always going to be ministering to people who have been publicly educated. That's Even right. if the Christian people are educating their own kids, if we're going to reach people from a lost and dying world, we're going to get lost people coming into our churches and finding Christ. And when you sit down and have conversations, increasingly it's like, yeah, I was, I was sexually touched. I was abused. Mm-hmm. I was exposed to pornography as a youngster. I was raised by lesbian parents or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So we have to help people to think through that and really remind them of the love of God, that God loves us, that we are not the sum total of people's inappropriate actions toward us, that our value is not defined by the abuse that we might have experienced, but we are eternally loved by God. We are made in his image. And throughout history, many people have experienced a lot of injustice and abuse, but in Christ, we can begin the healing process of really understanding how beautiful the gospel message is, that we are loved by God. And if someone treated us like dirt, that doesn't mean we're dirt. Mm -hmm. If someone treated us like a sexual object, that doesn't mean we're just the sum total of our sexuality. So these are the kind of things that we need to be thinking about as Christian churches and communicating to people because... When you're up front preaching to a thousand people or 200 people or 500 people or whatever the number is, there's always going to be a percentage of people in that audience that have been, have experienced sexual abuse mm-hmm. as children or, or even as young people. And we, we shouldn't just be wagging the finger at them. Don't you commit sexual pervert, you know, perverse acts. We, we want to tell them to avoid sexuality, but we, uh, inappropriate sexuality, but we also want to preach the fullness of the gospel to them, mm-hmm. God's love and healing and his king, his, his benevolent kingly rule over their lives and the hope and healing they can find in him. Mm-hmm. Very good. So now let's transition maybe to talking about, and I think you actually just maybe gave us the starting point, but yeah, transitioning to uh, yeah. what are some practical helps that will position people to overcome sexual sin? So in no particular order, a robust understanding of the gospel, Christ is king over all of creation. That includes you and every part of you, over your mind, heart, soul, body, and your strength. So understanding that he, he, he wants to rule all of you. He wants to rule your thinking. He wants to rule your, your head, your heart, your hands. He wants to rule your actions, your priorities, your relationships, And when you allow him to do that, he will never lead you astray because he is a benevolent, loving king. So preaching that message, Mm -hmm. calling people to to repent of sin and to trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, to experience the newness of life that comes through personal relationship with Christ is where hope and healing are found. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of baseline. Secondly, we need to do a good job of holding people accountable for their sin and their actions. So we we all need to encourage within our churches, not just a Sunday morning, you know, spectator form of Christianity. People need to get into mentoring, discipling, small group relationships. We need to encourage that. We need to model that as leaders. Men should be talking to men about their sexual addictions or sins. And accountability is not just listening. Oh, thanks, man. You know, thanks for sharing that with me. I'll pray for you this week. We need to be prepared to take each other to the wire, you know, mm-hmm. kick each other in the seat of the pants if we continue to transgress and violate God's command. So robust, solid accountability is helpful. We also need to offer people support in the context of unconditional love. We don't unconditionally accept every behavior, but we unconditionally love people. And we want to, without downplaying sin, Focus in on people that are repentant or repenting and help them to see that we love them, that they can find true intimacy and freedom uh, through Christ. So, for example, if someone comes to us and they admit some involvement in you know, heinous sexual sin, we're not like, oh, you dirty dog, yeah. you know, get out of here. You know, we, we, we want to be, we want to listen. We want to posture ourselves as People, so here's what I say to people. In life, I mean, there's umpteen dozen sins a person could could commit. Mm -hmm. So you and I, 
because we're sons of Adam, could commit any sin that any other human being has committed in human history, no matter how foul or how foreign to our thinking. But each of us will have different temptations. So I, I will go through life and I will commit certain sins. And there's other sins that won't even cross my mind. There won't be temptations for me. Mm -hmm. But then the next person's list of the sins they're going to commit or won't commit is going to be different. So when we when someone comes to us and says, I did fill in the blank, ABC, and we're like, how on earth could you possibly have ever done that? I, I can never imagine that. I, I would never want to do that. We need just to remind ourselves, well, that's great. Okay, so let's say we haven't committed this particular sin, but we could. Mm -hmm. We that's could. Right. right context, right environment, we could. So we, we need to be disgusted by sin, but we need to demonstrate love and kindness to the sinner. If they're in the process of repenting or are repentant especially, we, we want to, to point them to Christ and to realize there is grace and mercy at the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Again, instead of just, well, you shouldn't do it again. And if you do do it, we were immediately going to go to the elders of the church and that's the end of you. Right. There's a place for that, for the unrepentant believer. That's right. But we want to make sure that there is, um, uh, you know, a, a, a robust understanding of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of a phrase that you've mentioned before, where it's uh, Christianity is really like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's kind of we're telling we we, we both recognize there's a problem, but we're not coming from a position of. Uh, we could never commit that sin. Right. We're Christ. We aren't Christ, right? The distance between us and Christ is farther than the distance between us and a, a, another fellow believer yeah. or fellow sinner, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I don't know if it, that, that idea of a beggar asking another beggar where to find bread, that's not even original to me. I heard that years ago. And I, I don't even know the source, but it's, it's, it's a great word picture of, as leaders, we're holding high the standards of God, but we're also walking in humility before people and really manifesting to them the same expectations that God has of us. That's right. So if I'm living unconfessed sin, I should expect to be disciplined. If I don't repent, to be excommunicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, there's, there's that whole idea there of just love. We also need to push for a recommitment to God Again, sexual addiction and sin is always a symptom of a lack of intimacy with God and maybe even not having a relationship with God. So people need to get saved. You know, they need to be born again. Mm -hmm. But being born again doesn't mean, you know, if you're born again today, it doesn't mean tomorrow your life's perfect. Your, your, your sanctification is an ongoing mm -hmm. process. So we need to push for people to get involved in, in the spiritual disciplines, in meaningful relationships, in the word, in prayer. Even the discipline of fasting, this is really interesting to think about. Fasting is very physical. It has spiritual benefits, but it's very physical. So your flesh, your body is constantly crying out for attention. I want sex. I want food. I want drink. I want the right temperatures. You know, I, I want sunny skies. I yeah. want the breeze in my face. I want to smell nice things. You're, we're physiological beings and having physical pleasure is not a bad thing, but we tend to be very selfish in a broken world and that we, we, we're trying to constantly appeal to our fleshly appetites. And in some respects, what fasting does is it's sort of like sitting yourself down in a chair and I don't, I don't, I don't want to uh, suggest some sort of a dualism here as some sort of an out of body right. experience, yeah. <laughs> but just sort of picture this. It's like I'm sitting myself down in a chair and I'm watching my responses to the world, and I hear myself saying, "Feed me, feed me more," and I'm like, "No, you can wait. Mm -hmm. You can just be quiet for a little while." But I want food. No, you can wait. We're going to be fasting for today. Oh man, but I want sex. No, First Corinthians 7, your, your, your wife and yourself have decided to refrain from it for a period of time for the purpose of prayer. But I really want it. You can just settle down. You need to be reminded that you don't only live, you don't live by bread alone and you don't live by sex alone. Mm -hmm. So what, what fasting does is it's a, it's a biblical discipline to silence your flesh, to control your flesh. People generally in the West don't practice fasting because they're, 
they don't practice self-control. They mm-hmm. don't want self-control. And if I think if more Christians fasted, practiced the discipline of fasting, fasting from food, fasting from drink, fasting from food and drink, maybe at times even deliberately in a Christian marriage, fasting for a period of time from sexuality, sexual intercourse, this would help to position us to tell our flesh, like, you are not going to control me. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be led by the Spirit of God, operative in my flesh, operative in my soul and in my mind. So this is important because we we generally, if a little kid says, I want more, we give him more. If a teenage boy says to his girlfriend, I want sex, she gives him sex. If you go to your boss and said, I, I want a raise or I'm quitting, we give them the raise. I want a three-day weekend, I'll give you a three-day weekend. If you want me to elect you to office to vote for you, you better give me social medicine or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So we, in our society, we tend to get what we ask for. Mm-hmm. And what fasting does is it turns the tables on our fleshly appetites and it says, you're not in charge. I'm going to be led by the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. So we need to teach people how to uh, control their flesh. And one of the choice means of doing that is through the discipline of fasting. It's really fascinating. Fa- fascinating. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Really, yeah. <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> Sorry to throw that in there, but that's, yeah, that's good because that is pointing back to a spiritual discipline that's underutilized for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and very, it's very interesting that the parallel there, um, what other ways can you think of like in terms of helping people overcome? So we want to, we want to tell people, look, God is pro sex. I, I disciple young men every year in the church. And I talk about this in my Sunday morning sermons. God is pro-sex. He's pro-sex. He is pro-pleasure. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not trying to be graphic, but it needs to be said. God created the orgasm. Mm-hmm. God created that. It didn't evolve. God created that. God is pro-pleasure. God created the natural desire for a man to be with a woman and a woman to be with a man. These are beautiful things. And we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that. We are sexual beings. Why am I ashamed to admit that? So this is, we need to remind people God is pro-sex. He's not anti-sex. But you see, many sex addicts are under the impression that freedom from addiction, freedom from sexual sin means, well, I gotta, I gotta deny the fact that I like sex. No, 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 no. If, if you fill your face with sugar, candy bars, and junk food, it might taste really good. And you, you, you train your taste buds to just enjoy high carbs, white sugar, all, you know, all the chemicals that are in fake food. And you think that's where pleasure is found. And someone's like, hey, have you ever tried honey? Have you ever tasted a fresh orange? Have you ever had whole foods? like real bread that someone actually baked in their kitchen. And they, and they almost like they have to train their taste buds to like that, which is real instead of that, which is fake. Mm-hmm. And when you start to like that, which is real, it's like, actually this has greater texture, greater depth to it. And it's actually healthy for me. Mm-hmm. You feel good after eating it. Yeah. <laughs> so in the same way, when, when a, when a couple has sexual intercourse and they save themselves for marriage and they're practicing sexual intercourse respectfully, creationally, as a husband and wife in a context of marriage, it's way better Mm -hmm. than sexual perversion. It's way better. So I've said to people that someone should do a bumper sticker that says, you know, Christian couples have better sex. Yeah. If we could get that message out, Christian couples have better sex. This would revolutionize people's understanding of the nature of creational sex. And I think it would pull them away from all these false, perverse, artificial expressions of sex that c- taste kind of sweet, but they actually are poisoning your soul. Mm-hmm. They're poisoning you. They're robbing you of intimacy. So God, we're, as, as truth tellers, we're called to teach a positive biblical view of human sexuality. And when you'll discover it, you find it to, to be much more satisfying than all the cheap counterfeits the world offers. I was talking to a guy a while ago and he was quite engaged in sexual perversion. And he, he tried to like say, well, this is what I do. And he started to try to describe to me some of his perversion. I'm like, hey man, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear that you're, you're, 
we can speak of this in generalities, but I don't want to hear all these disgusting things you're engaged in. No, no, you, you got to hear it. I said, no, I'm cutting you off. We're going to end this conversation. I don't want to hear it. And then he made this comment. He says, well, you, you can't tell me that you have a better sex with your wife than I have with all these girls and guys because he was you know, messing around with both, both hmm. sexes. And I said, dude, I can tell you straight up. I can have better sex any day of the week as a Christian man with a Christian wife than you'll ever have with all these runarounds that you're hooking up with any day of the week. Because we have the added benefit of Christ at the center of our union. Mm -hmm. We have trust. We have selflessness. We have vulnerability. And all of these things put the finishing touches on this fake, feeble, desperate attempt that you're engaged in to try to find pleasure and all of this perversion and all these people with all of these methods and, and you know, dehumanizing acts that you're participating in. That's death. Yep. That's, that's like sex in a cemetery. That's death. It's, it's leading you to the grave. It's wrong. Even in, in the, in the, in the, the pleasure of the moment, there is darkness. That's right. There is a loss of hope. There is uh, a, a lack of uh, love. Uh, you're just using the other person. You're you're literally worse than an animal. You're just using the other person for genital intercourse. And at the end of that, all you have is emptiness and brokenness and shame. And there is no hope or life or liberty there at all. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, I think there's a, a couple of other practical takeaways. Um, I know one that you mentioned, this is going back 11 years before I was married. Okay. Uh, I was in a, a class in First Corinthians at uh, Bible school when you were teaching. And I remember you talking about... Um, if you burn with passion to get married. Yeah. <laughs> so, and at that time I was dating uh, my now wife, Julianne, and I went back and said, he said, you should get married. We should get married. <laughs> and you so, probably didn't Im- immediately say I was burning with passion. <laughs> no, so I didn't say that. <laughs> I just remember you saying there's something about per- giving permission in terms of um, not being done school, right? right not yeah. being a grad, not graduating, not having your career all well underway and whatnot. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a few things I, I would just and, and I appreciate the fact that you remembered that that advice. Just a few things I want to kind of leave people with. So it's just practical wisdom here. So for example, if you're a Christian couple and you have children, don't hide your sexuality from your children. Don't hide it. Now, what I'm not saying is you're not going to be leaving the door open. Okay? You're not going to be describing the details of your sexual intercourse. But there is only blessing, there's only blessing for your children when your children see their parents embracing, kissing, holding hands, the dad giving his wife a swat on the butt. Okay, we shouldn't be ashamed or afraid of that. I'm very open with my kids that sex is a good thing. It's not a gross thing. And I think what that has done for my children which I did not receive from my parents, by the way, but what, what it did for my children is it actually helped to mitigate against an unhealthy sexual attraction to other people. So my my kids, you know, we, I mean, I haven't interviewed each of them in terms of the nitty gritty details, but my kids all went into, three, three of the five were married, into their marriages pure as virgins. Mm-hmm. And it's because we didn't, we didn't present sex to them as something dirty, something secretive. We talked very openly about, about boundaries. Like you don't need to be feeling each other up mm-hmm. when you're dating or engaged. Uh, you, you don't need to be making out. You shouldn't be doing that. But at the same time, sex is a good thing. You should pursue it. You know, I hope you find someone with whom you can get married and have a loving relationship and sex can be a vibrant part of that. I, I do know, on the other hand, people, it's like, I never saw my parents kiss. I never saw them hold hands. And they kind of they kind of grew up thinking sex was almost like a little bit, a little bit gross. Mm-hmm. No, we don't want to do that. We want to present a positive view. We should address the benefits and the blessings of it. We should speak well of marriage. Man, I love being married. 
This is a great thing about marriage. You know, there's freedom, there's life, there's liberty, there's respect, there's mutuality. It's great for a man and woman to be together. We never really even figure each other out. Men don't, men will never fully understand women mm -hmm. and women will never fully understand men. That's the, one of the beauties of heterosexual marital sex. You're in a covenant. You don't really fully understand each other. Part of a good, good relationship is just enjoying the mystery of the other. Just enjoying the mystery of the other. By the way, Chris, I happen to think, this is my own theory, that the reason why there's an uptick in homosexuality in our culture is because people don't feel comfortable with mystery. When two men are together, you're essentially just looking at yourself in the mirror. When two women are together, you're essentially just looking at each, looking at each other in the mirror. There's no mystery. Men understand men. Women understand women. But men don't understand women. Hmm. But we're complementary. We're different, but we're complementary. And there's mystery and beauty and joy in the fact that we have different bodies. We have different ways of thinking about things. We have different emotional responses to things. This is part of the ongoing, unfolding beauty and mystery of heterosexual, creationally normative marriage, and part of which is the way we interact with each other in bed. This is a good thing. Hmm. I also would say teach boundaries. Don't assume your kids know it. Mm -hmm. Know what the boundaries are. It's like, hey, Johnny, I want you to stay pure. Okay, Dad. So maybe Johnny thinks what that means is that I can't go all the way mm -hmm. with my girlfriend. No. You should not be doing anything that brings sexual arousal to your boyfriend or girlfriend. So I, I, I just, I, I, I'm not going to mandate the specifics of this, but if you're, I, I have a lot of respect for couples that just say, we're not going to kiss till our mm -hmm. wedding day. But if they kiss, okay, a peck on the cheek, a quick kiss, okay, whatever. As soon as you start like deep kissing, making out, you're sexually arousing the other person. That is unacceptable behavior for Christians. That should be reserved for your wedding night, mm -hmm. right? And so teach those boundaries to your kids and to young people. S say to them, look, this is right, this is wrong. Not, well, it's all gray until you're actually involved in intercourse. Mm -hmm. No, no. If you're sexually arousing the other person deliberately, uh, you're sinning. And so couples need to set strict boundaries. You know, if they're going to hold hands, if they're going to kiss on the cheek, whatever it might be. Okay. As soon as you go beyond that, you're probably leading the person to sin. So you, you might not even want to do that. Mm -hmm. So full disclosure, I don't, I don't mind being very open and honest about this. So when, when I was dating my wife, we actually did pretty good until we we're engaged. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my word, the temptation just went through the roof. So there was a period of four to six weeks where it's like, what in the world is going on here? Like, there's just a lot of sexual temptation to compromise. So then we just kind of said, you know what? We don't trust ourselves. We waited this long. We're just going to, we're not even going to touch each other for the last four or five months. I think it was five months leading up to our marriage. Four and a half months, I think it was. Hmm. And that was good. So to couples that maybe have, quote unquote, gone too far, you're making out or whatever, just hit the reset button. Mm -hmm. We're not doing this anymore. We're not going to mess up. And it, it makes, when you enter into marriage and you, you actually have proven that you have self-control, that gives a lot of confidence to your spouse that you're going to be faithful to them in marriage. If you've lost self-control and you've sinned sexually, do not make the mistake of failing to repent of it. Mm -hmm. I've talked to a lot of Christian couples. It's like, yeah, we were having premarital sex and then we just got married. Oh, did you ever confess it? Well, no, we just got married. We made it right. You didn't confess it? You didn't admit one to the other and to God that it was a sin? Um, no. Almost without exceptions, when I meet Christian couples that are having sexual problems, it's because they had sexual problems prior to marriage and they didn't repent of it and deal mm -hmm. with it. So that's really important. Okay, fourth, to your point. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's a, a radical concept. Okay, this is just going to really rock the foundations of Canadian culture and church culture. Here's an idea. If, if a person is struggling with sexual boundaries and self-control, this, this is a radical idea. Ready for this? Get married. Mm -hmm. Get married. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to, but first I'm going to do a four-year degree, and then I'm going to work for two years, and I'm going to buy a house. Oh, Really? 
So let me get this straight. God, let's say you, you went into puberty at 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. Yep. Okay. So you're burning with passion. Yep. Uh, you're, you've struggled with sexual compromise. Yep. Okay. So let me get this straight. God created you as a sexual being as a young teenager. And in your great wisdom, what you've decided to do is to wait 10 or 15 years after you've become sexually mature to get married and you expect to remain pure during that time? Is that what you're telling me? This is the ridiculous mindset that people have in our culture. Like where in the Bible does it say you have to have a university degree and a house in order to get married? Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. So I'm a big advocate in getting married young. If the right person is present. Mm -hmm. So I'm not putting, I'm not saying someone who's getting married older is doing the wrong thing, but the problem is not people getting married too young. That is a lie. Mm -hmm. I think from the pit of hell, because many people, you hear this, even 40, 50 year olds, well, we're getting divorced. We've been married for 25, 30 years. Oh, why? Oh, we just got married when we're too young. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Like, what are you talking about? What does your age have to do with it? It's all about your mindset and your spiritual maturity. So we've said to our kids, you know, when you're, when you're 18, you're green-lighted. So we don't want you dating before 17 because there's no point in dating for three years before you're married. But if you want to start courting or dating at 17 with the idea that you might get married at 18, have at it. There's boundaries. It has to be a Christian. If it's mm -hmm. not a Christian, we're not going to support it. We're not going to be at the wedding we're not going to fund it. We're going to do everything we can to try to end the relationship. Yep. So it has to be a Christian. It has to be a Christian that's growing. But get married. Like say to our young people, like get married. Mm -hmm. We we should have more young people getting married younger who understand, have a robust view of, of biblical sexuality and marriage. God didn't design people to start getting married halfway through their lives. Mm -hmm. Right? So God designed us to get married when we're younger. Again, no problem with the remarriage if your spouse dies. If for whatever reason God isn't God calls you to celibacy, that's great too. If you know you're in a church of two people and they're both the same gender as you and you yeah. have, can't find someone until you're 35 or 40, fine. There's no shame in that yeah. at all in any way, shape, or form. But if you have the wherewithal, don't wait. Mm -hmm. Set your life up in such a way that uh, you're you're able to get married on the on the younger side. And then my final word of advice is. During the day, if you're a sexual being, you're going to have sexual thoughts. You're going, to, you're going to see things, hear things, think things. Some of it's just going to, it's going to come from good source. You know, just you're living for the Lord and you're a sexual being and you want to express yourself sexually. Other times it's going to be sexual temptation. Train your mind to focus your sexual desires on your spouse, not on other people's bodies, not on other people's physiques, other people's curves, other people's muscles, you know. Focus your sex is not just physiological, it's mental. Mm -hmm. And if we learn to think of our marriage as the, the form within which we express ourselves sexually, and when we're tempted, we're like, I'm not going to be thinking about this person. I'm going to think about the beauty of my spouse, the joy of my mar marital relationship with my spouse. Then we can express our sexuality properly. So in many respects, this is a mind game. If, if our minds are out of control, then our bodies will be out of control. Mm -hmm. So we need to fill our minds with truth, discipline our minds, learn the disciplines of self-control, remind ourselves that God loves us, that he has a plan for us that is beautiful and pure and perfect, that He he's okay with our sexual appetites, but he wants us to channel them into, you know, a, a healthy diet, so to speak. Mm -hmm. not, not eating junk food that will destroy us, but eating the healthy food that will benefit us and bless us. And when we're used to that, again, it, it tastes better. It is better. It's wonderful and joyful to be able to express our sexuality in, within biblical boundaries. And, and in all of that, God is glorified because marriage and sexuality in particular, according to Ephesians 5, mm -hmm. is an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that beautiful union between a man and a woman as he lovingly leads his wife and desires her respect and she desires to, to submit to him. There's perfect unity and oneness, mm -hmm. which is an expression of the unity that the church 
should have with the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully that's encouraging for people, gives them some some things to think about and to to look forward to and to put into practice in in their own uh, uh, as they seek to express their own sexuality within the boundaries that God has defined. Excellent. Well, thank you, Aaron. A reminder to our listeners that we can be heard on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network on their app. Uh, you download the app there and you'll find this podcast along with a host of other good ones to uh, to tune into. We're also heard on the CJXC radio, Canada's constant Christian companion. You can find that at 11 a.m. Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. Thursdays. And we will be back next week with another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. Mm-hmm.